But for our time this morning around the Word of God, I'll get you to head back to the book of Hebrews. The last time we were in Hebrews, I sounded like Mickey Mouse. Um, but I do want to come back to Hebrews to uh, just linger around something that uh, we kind of covered, but we need to just re uh, reprise, as it were, to make um, some particular points that I want to make as we begin this uh, new year. Um, I, I did plan on, actually, uh, preaching from Jeremiah 6 this morning, but uh, there, there's a particular word I wrestled with all week that I just wasn't satisfied in my understanding, and I wasn't able to get up here to the church, to my library, to, to pull off some commentaries, um, and so I've done now. There's a bunch over there, and I'll take those home this week, and so Lord willing, next week, we'll, we'll look at Jeremiah chapter 6. Uh, also this week, I um, was reading ancient Babylonian royal letters, as you do, and uh, that's for my Ph.D. studies. Uh, the reading ancient letters, Babylonian letters, Egyptian letters, ancient letters has been helping me in, in my Ph.D. studies, and maybe one day I'll fully explain why why. I was reading those, but uh, as I was reading those, there was two letters, two letters from different kings that captured my attention. And after reading them, I kind of pondered on uh, the, the connection it made to the Bible. And I, I just thought by way of uh, beginning this morning, I'd share those with you. Uh, the, the first letter was written by a King Shulgi. I know you guys never heard of the guy, but... There, there was a Sumerian king long time ago called King Shulgi, and he was writing to one of his chief officers, a guy by the name of Ishbi-Ara. Uh, and in this letter, he was warning him, um, this chief officer, uh, warning him of another officer. And, and he says this, that just kind of pulled me up. He says, uh, please be careful that his heart, that is the, the one... Uh, that he was warning about. Please be careful that his heart does not turn against you. So the king is warning this one of his officers that with the arrival of another officer, please be careful that his heart does not turn against you. Obviously, in all relationships, there's the potential of betrayal, uh, but more so politically and in civil matters. And so hence the, the warning to be careful. The other letter that pulled me up, and I'll connect it to in a moment, was, uh, was probably the most interesting or the more interesting of the two. And, and this was written between two kings. King of Uruk was writing to the king of Babylon. And, and this is what he says in the middle of the letter. He says, my thoughts and your thoughts are one and the same because I have confidence in you. Again, that, that, that pulled me up. My thoughts and your thoughts are one and the same because I have confidence in you, or you could translate it, because I am trusting you. In other words, the reason why there's confidence, the reason why there's trust between the kings is because they're thinking alike. And I just kind of stood on that. Because I, I, I remember a verse in Isaiah 55 that says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. And as a result, there is no peace. Do you remember that? 
the point is when our thoughts and God's thoughts are on the same page, then our ways are on the same page with his ways. And then there's trust, there's confidence, and there's peace. And between these two kings, there was that peace. There was that trust. Why? Because they were thinking alike. In fact, the other thing that I thought was interesting as I kind of dug it a little bit deeper into this is that the word thought in, in, in Akkadian has its cognate in Hebrew that translates taste. You remember Psalm 34, 8? Taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, taste the Lord. Uh, take after his thoughts. Think like him and you'll see that he is good. The reason perhaps um, we don't follow the Lord as we should is because uh, we have different tastes than him. His tastes are over here and our tastes are over here. His tastes are righteous, our tastes are unrighteous. But when we're on the same page, ultimately there's, there's peace. There's happiness. As I said, as I was stewing on these letters, it really illuminated the Bible in a number of places for me. Because both letters reveal... Certainly on the political and civil level, that peace between two parties begins in the heart. It begins in the mind. It begins in our thoughts. And when the two parties think alike, well, there's peace. And as I said, this is exactly how it works between us and God. If the heart is not right and there is not the same thinking, then there will be no trust, no confidence, and ultimately there will be no peace. Simple but profound, yeah? So you come to Hebrews 5, for example, where we left off a couple weeks ago. And, and you remember we were discussing spiritual maturity uh, there in chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. And the question might come, what, what are some of the causes of immaturity? Now, we know the characteristics. Remember we said that the characteristics uh, of immaturity was, you see that in verse 11 of chapter 5, they were lazy or dull or sluggish. And we call that uninterested. They're just uninterested in spiritual things. Different tastes. We could add that. Uh, they were unteachable. There at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 12, they were too lazy to understand. They were unskilled. Verse 13 says they were inexperienced. Uh, they were inexperienced with the word of righteousness, so they were actually unrighteous. And then chapter 5, verse 14, they were undiscerning. They weren't able to distinguish between good and evil. And so you put all that together, as we, we mentioned a few weeks ago, they were uh, spiritual immaturity manifests itself in uh, uh, not interested, not teachable, not skilled, not righteous, not discerning, and you could even add not faithful or unstable. How do you get there? How do you get there? How do you get to being spiritually mature? Or, or let's say m maybe just remaining spiritually mature. Maybe ever since you became a Christian, you remained immature you've never grown or and this is not necessarily the case with these readers they they were progressing and but they started going backwards how does that happen well it it, it certainly is a result of their thinking that's why the writer of hebrews had to write a letter and get them to start thinking because their thinking wasn't on the same page as god's thinking 
But if you wanted to break it down, there could be a number of things. It, it could be because of unbelief. It could be because of idolatry. It could be because of legalism or antinomianism. Or, listen, it could be simply because of ignorance. You've never been taught. A lot of people like that. A lot of Christians out there who, who don't know a thing because they've never been taught. And thus remain spiritually immature. But, but, if you were to ask why the Hebrews, not, not these Hebrews, but the Hebrews of Exodus, remember? He keeps referring to them and saying you're just like the Hebrews of the Exodus. Remember those who left Exodus, those Israelites? If you were to ask why those Hebrews went from spiritual immaturity to outright apostasy, well, the answer comes there in chapter 6, verse 8. Look at it. The heart's revealed, and what's in the heart? The heart has produced thorns and thistles. You see that? Their heart has thorns and thistles. Now, if you go back up to verse 7, this is all part of an illustration that he's using. You see that the rain comes down, but the ground was no good. Now, if the ground was good and the rain came, comes down, then you get vegetation. But if the rain comes down and the ground's no good, then it's going to produce thorns and thistles. Nothing wrong with the rain. The issue is what? The ground. And in the metaphor, the, the illustration, the ground is what? The heart. This, this is just a reiteration of the parable of the sower here. Remember that? So, where am I heading with all this? The issue here, the, the, the issue for the readers of the book of Hebrews, and even the readers, and, and, or for us who are reading it as well, here's the issue. If we find ourselves spiritually immature, the first place you look is where? Your heart. The issue is our hearts. The spiritual immaturity is related to our hearts. Or let me say it another way. Spiritual immaturity is related to your thinking. Your thoughts are not God's thoughts. Your ways are not God's ways. Because if they were, you'll be on a path to maturity. And listen... When your thoughts are not God's thoughts and your ways are not God's ways, then don't be surprised if you're a bit restless. Don't be surprised if you're doubting. Don't be surprised if you, you're a bit uncertain on everything. Or in a word, don't be surprised if you have a heart of unbelief, just like these readers. Now, now by the way, you, you can actually trace the buildup to all of this back in chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3. Remember this? In chapter 3, verse 8, now he's, he's quoting Psalm 95, but the point's still here. In, in, in Hebrews 3, 8, he says, do not harden your hearts. You see that? We're back to the heart. Just to point that out, if it's not hitting you. Don't harden your heart. Look at verse 10. Don't let your heart go astray. Verse 12, don't let your heart turn away. And then verse 15 is just a repeat of 3, 8, which is don't harden your heart. I mean... How many times do you have to say it to make the point? The, the, the issue is the heart. The concern is the heart. Don't harden it. Don't let it go astray. Don't let it turn away. But the obvious question comes, well, how, how does that happen? Right? How do you not do all this? I mean, don't harden your heart. Okay, I don't want to harden my heart, but what do I do not to do that? Don't let your heart go astray. Again, what does that look like? Is that easy or is that hard to do? Don't turn your heart away from the living God. Well, I don't want to do that. 
How do I not do that? Well, uh, the answer is at least in, in, in verse 12 with one direction. You notice how the beginning of verse 12 begins. Watch out. There it is. Watch out, he says. Everybody see that? Or, or you could translate it, take heed, take care, be careful, beware. In fact, it all sounds a bit um, familiar. Don't harden your heart. Don't let your heart go astray. Don't, turn, don't let your heart turn away from the living God. Watch out for that. Watch over that. What does that sound like? It sounds like text we read earlier. Proverbs 4.23. Remember that? Guard your heart. Keep your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. That's what I read earlier. That's the Christian Standard Bible. Guard. You might have keep or, or watch over or protect. And you, you might also have above all else. And you might be asking above all else what? Well, remember in the ensuing verses, it's well, watch your mouth, watch your tongue, watch your eyes, watch your feet. But above all else, watch your heart. And if you don't have above else, you might have vigilance. Guard your heart with all vigilance, with all diligence. Let, let me read you another translation that... It's literal, but really, I think it's to the point. And, and, and I got this from a Proverbs commentary, a brand new one uh, that I read the other day that I, I, that I think is right when you get to the, the actual Hebrew words. Listen to this. Against every imprisonment, protect your heart. Catch that? Against every imprisonment, protect your heart. There's a lot of things out there that want to imprison our hearts, right? I mean, you think of all the, the, the philosophies and ideologies, everything raised up against the knowledge of God that's out there. It wants to take your heart captive. It actually sounds like 2 Corinthians 10.5 and Colossians 2.8, doesn't it? Don't be captive. Don't be taken captive. I mean, with all that woke ideology out there, the whole, you know, sadly to say, it has imprisoned many a heart, even Christians' hearts, or, or a heart's mind, Right? as a man thinks in his heart. So when we talk about heart, we're talking about mind. I know we said this over the years, and I just need to remind you of that, in case you forgot or you didn't know that. We in the Western world think of heart as the seat of feelings, but heart in the Semitic world, in the, in the Bible world, is the seat of thinking. You say, well, where's the feelings come from? The feelings come actually from the kidneys or, or, the, or the bowels, Right? That's how the, the Bible speaks about feelings. It comes from the bowels or the kidney. But when, it, when you want to talk about thinking, rational, reasoning, thinking, it comes from the mind, or as it's described in the Bible, the heart. And so again, take a literal translation of Proverbs 4.23, against every imprisonment, protect your heart. Why? Well, point is clear. If, if, if you let your heart, if you let your mind be held captive, well, that's going to produce what? That's going to produce doubt. It's going to produce uncertainty. It's going to produce unbelief. In, in other words, don't let your wicked and don't let wicked and ungodly poison come into your heart. Against every imprisonment. I like that. 
I know that sounds, that, that is new to you. Just let it sink in for a bit. Against every imprisonment, anything out there that you know that would want to take you away and imprison you, separate yourself from that. Protect yourself from that. I mean, you think about Adam. God placed Adam in the garden and gave him two jobs. To guard it and to serve it. Remember that? To guard it, the garden, and to serve the garden. How did he do with both of them, but especially the guarding part? In other words, the garden was this sanctuary where he and God met. Well, he and Eve met, right? This was the, the holy place where God would come, as it seems, in the cool of the day, and they would commune with God. So you, this is the holy place where God comes, so you better not let anything in that would violate that. Guard it. How did he do? Mm, didn't do so good. Take that to your heart. Take that to your mind. Protect your heart so that nothing comes in it that would captivate it and take you away from communing with God. Does that make sense? That, that's where spiritual immaturity comes from. That's where unbelief comes from. where the hardening comes from. That's where the going astray comes from, as he says. This is where the, the turning away from the living God comes from. Again, the idea here is that you have to separate yourself from the, the things that lead to unbelief. Now, uh, well, how does that happen? That, that, that's really where I, I want to discuss this morning. How does that happen? How, what does that look like? In other words, how do I protect my heart? How do I guard my heart? I mean, if we agree with the Puritan John Flavel that the keeping and right managing of the heart in every condition is the greatest business of the Christian life. Did you catch that? Greatest business of the Christian life. If we, if we agree with him that it is the greatest business, or as A.W. Pink puts it, the greatest work, he says this, uh, A.W. Pink, if the keeping of the heart be the great work of the Christian, then how few real Christians are there in the world? I mean, when is the last time you, you thoughtfully thought through how do I protect my heart? We know the verse. We can all probably have memorized Proverbs 4.23, and now we see it fleshed out in Hebrews where they didn't protect their heart. Ungodly thoughts, ungodly thinking. Came in, came in and it's, it's poisoned the well, as it were. It's taken them captive, taken their thinking captive, taken their hearts captive, and the result is a hardening. A result is letting, uh, going astray, and, and in a word, it's unbelief. So again, how, how, do, how do we do that? How do we protect our hearts? Well, I, I want to, for our time remaining, I want to give you some help with that. Uh, the title of this, if you had a bulletin, was Directions on Protecting Your Heart. And I want to give you ten of those, ten directions. Really, ten words. 
actually just 10 words. This is one of those word association things. I'll give you the word and I'll explain what it means. But in the end, it's a direction on how practically you can protect your heart, okay? I'm going to go through this quickly because there's 10 of them. So keep up with me. And if you're taking notes, here's the first word. The first word, uh, we'll call this observation. Observation. In other words, if you're truly serious about uh, protecting your heart against every imprisonment, separating yourself from that, then you need frequent observation, frequent examination, frequent self-examination. In other words, you remember in the ancient times and even the prophets, you know, I was reading Jeremiah 6 this week and God says, I have placed watchmen over you, which were the prophets. The prophets were the watchmen. And the watchmen would have been a, a term they would have understood because, you know, the watchmen would be on the city walls watching out for the enemy. I mean, they have shifts, but the idea is that they're constantly watching to make sure the enemy doesn't come. I mean, if one of those watchmen accidentally fell asleep and the enemy did come under his watch, then, you know, off with his head. I mean, my brother works for the FBI, and, and his job with the FBI is surveillance. That, that is, he, he sits in a van, a, a tinted van all day long, um, traveling around, following foreign nationals that just come into the country, making sure that they're not spies, may, may, making sure they're not terrorists. What if he wasn't doing his job of, of watching them, observing them, and something awful happened on his watch? There's a seriousness to this. And, and along the lines of, you know, observating, or uh, observing rather, yourself and frequent self-examination, part of this is actually knowing yourself, Right? Knowing yourself. That, that is to say, don't put yourself in places where you know there is a potential for your heart to be taken captive. In fact, let me put it this way. You put your heart in a prison before someone or something else does. Catch that? You put your heart in a prison. You imprison your heart. So that you're not imprisoned by something or someone else. So that's where we'll begin. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about observation. Second word I have for you is humiliation. Humiliation. And that's, that's just to say you, you better keep that heart humble. You better stay humble. Keep your heart in an attitude of humility. Keep your heart in a state of lowliness. Remember, we, we looked at the Beatitudes some time ago. Blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Maintain that poor in spirit. God says, to this one I will look. To those who are what? Humble, contrite in spirit, and tremble at my word. To say, how do you stay humble? Well, I'll tell you how to stay humble. Keep going back to the cross. Keep going back to the cross. Keep keep reflecting on who Jesus is. I mean, that's the, the book of Hebrews, right? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Keep that in the forefront of your mind. Imprison yourself with those thoughts. Keep your heart soft. Keep your heart tender. Not hard. Not crusty. Because that's what pride does. 
H how does some, somebody go from just a, a soft heart to a hard heart? Well, well, spiritually speaking, that's pride. There's no mystery in that. It's pride. I mean, you think of the, the fall of David. David was a man after God's own heart, but pride got to him. And there was devastating consequences for the pride that got to him. So stay humble. Dependent, unceasing prayer will, will, will give you a humble heart. Let me give you a third word. There's observation, there's humiliation. The third word I have here is meditation. Meditation. And in fact, this could be the, the first word because this to me, I believe, is the, the, the key towards Christian maturity. If you want to be mature, you need to learn the, the art of meditation. I've said this before, when you look at the Puritans and you look at the vast amount of material that they, they wrote and, and the, the maturity that they had, the key for them was they understood meditation. And that's a biblical word, as you know. You have it in Joshua 1.8. Meditate on these words. Psalm 1, the whole Psalter begins with what? Blessed is the man who never walks or stands or sits in the world because he knows being captivated by the world, what that will do. But his delight and his meditation is where? It is in the word of God. Meditation. I, I call it prayerful reading. I think you, you know that. Prayerful reading. Because meditation isn't just reading. It's prayerful reading. It's chewing it over. God's speaking to you. You, you talk back to him. Talk back to him. Puts it in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right. And you know that little list. Do, with, do what with all that? Think on these things. These are the things that you're supposed to be thinking about. Think about those things that are true, not those things that are not true. How many of us are entrapped, imprisoned by those thoughts that are not true? Where does anxiety come from? Anxiety comes from, think, most of the time, it comes from thinking on those things that are not true. That, that you actually don't know if they're true. We've wasted so, many, so much time and energy and lost so many hairs because we, 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 we think on and dwelling on things that we actually don't know. Meditation. Remember, it's the, the chewing over, it's the thinking over. You, you look at your life. You think, what do you enjoy the most? Or let me say it another way. What do you talk about the most? I, I, what you talk about the most, I'll tell you what you are meditating on the most, right? Whatever is coming out here is first in there. And the psalmist says, man, if you're delighting in the, in the law of the Lord, if you're meditating on the, on the law of the Lord, the, the teaching of the word of God, then it's going to come out. It's going to come out in your language. It's going to come out in your speech. It's going to guard your feet. It's going to guard your eyes. And of course, it's going to guard your heart. So meditation. Following that, here's a fourth word. Supplication. We all know what supplication is, right? This word for prayer. I mean, if meditation is prayerful reading, and that is kind of the, the reading aspect of it, then let's zero in on the praying aspect of protecting our hearts. 
probably most of us have somewhere in our hearts unbelief is because we don't pray as we should. Right? We don't pray as we should. I mean, if we're supposed to be meditating on the word of God day and night, and if meditation is prayerful reading, then what, what does our reading look like and what does our praying look like? And then we wonder why we struggle. We wonder why we're full of anxiety. We wonder why our, our lives are full of unrighteousness. Why we're weak and flabby Christians. Why we're, you know, uninterested in the spiritual things, lazy and dull and sluggish. Why we're, we're undisciplined. Why we're undiscerning. Why we're unstable. John, put it, John Bunyan put it this way. Prayer... Prayer will make a man cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. <laughs> Got that? Let me say that again. Prayer will make a man cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Prayer. Now, look, we talked about prayerlessness some weeks ago as a church killer. We, we went to, to, to Psalm 10 and we, we saw the the. the the contrast between the righteous man and the unrighteous man. And, and the unrighteous man, there's no thought of God in his heart. No thought of God in his mind. And we get that, that he doesn't pray. We understand that he doesn't pray. But here, the, the, the Christian, the blessed man, the, the, those who are saved, prayer then becomes what? It's like breathing. Just as breathing is to human life, Prayer is to the Christian life. So prayer, supplication, uh, it all shows that you're dependent on God. You ask for his help and you ask that you, well, especially with this protecting your heart bit, there's no way you can protect your heart without his help. I read in a prayer meeting this morning, Psalm 119, verse 80, which is a simple prayer. Lord, may my heart be blameless. May my heart be pure. That was that was the psalmist prayer. Now the only reason, the only way your heart's going to be blameless, the only way your heart's going to be pure is if you protect your heart. So you need to pray, and you need to pray to God because you need His help with that. So supplication. Let me give you a fifth word, a fifth direction. Uh, and I, sadly, most Christians don't understand this. And that's mortification. Mortification. Romans 8, 3, or 13 rather, Romans 8, 13, and Colossians 3, 5. Both of those verses, you can look it up later. Paul says there, you must put to death, and that's where we get the word mortify. You must put to death the deeds of the flesh. The, the lust that's in your flesh, that, that, that still remains. There's a law of uh, uh, a flesh principle there, a law principle, a principle of law, principle of flesh that's, uh, uh, that still reigns in us. You want to know why you sin? You know why you are ensnared by the temptations? Remember how James puts it? You can't blame God. Every man that sinned, he, he sins because he is, he is drawn like, like bait. Sin is out there dangling and, and it, it, it's baited for you. And your flesh says, I want it. 
The flesh says, I crave it. And you give into it. How do you not give into it? Well, here's one, one way is, is to mortify that lust. Mortify that lust in your flesh. You say, how do I do that? Well, I'll, I'll just give you the words of Jesus. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Now, obviously he wasn't being literal, but he's making a, a point. That's mortification, by the way. Get serious about your sin. Take sin seriously. That's mortification. Mortification is taking sin seriously in your life. How many of us take sin seriously? Because we're serious about protecting our heart. We're serious about holiness. We're, we're serious about godliness. We're serious about glorifying God with our bodies. Remember Samuel? Came back, gave, gave Saul an order to kill all the, the Amicalites. Remember that? He comes back and what's that bleeding I hear? Uh, well, we, we killed most of them, but we just kept some of the, you know, the best sheep, the best oxen. And we took some things for ourselves. That's, that's a fair deal. Did I tell you to do that? No. Obedience is better than what? Sacrifice. Oh, but I, and I kept King Agag over here because, look, he's my trophy. So, you know, we're going to harass him. You know how the story ends. Bring him out to me. And what does Samuel do with Agag? He hacks him to death in front of the Lord. That, that's a perfect illustration of what you're supposed to do with your sin. Hack your sin to pieces before the Lord. Put sin to death. That's mortification. Uproot and weed out all the garbage in your heart. Remember, especially the men, you remember this verse as we were talking about our Father's Day message, Psalm 9710? You who love the Lord hate evil. You who love the Lord hate evil. That's where mortification begins. That's where Protecting your heart begins. You hate evil. You don't want any evil to entrap you, imprison you. Uh, by the way, if you want a, a very good book, there's there now tons of good books on mortification, but if you want a, uh, an oldie but goodie book, John Owen's probably read, uh, written one of the best works on mortification. And as I understand it, that book came out of lectures as to teenage boys he was tutoring. I think the book is just simply called Mortification. We as a church read a book that was um, John Owen's Mortification written in today's language called The Enemy Within by Chris Lungar. So if, if the Puritan language is a bit too verbose and hard for you, read that book by Chris Lungar, The Enemy Within. Mortification. Let me give you a number, uh, another direction. This is number six. Uh, the word's appreciation. Appreciation. What do I mean by that? Cultivate a thankful heart. Cultivate a thankful heart. Have a, a gratitude attitude. I mean, again, you think about the contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian. One, he doesn't pray. Two, he doesn't give God any honor. And what does Romans 1 also add? He does not give God any what? Thanks. I mean, if there's one singular characteristic of Christians that demarcates us from the rest of the world, and there's a lot, but if there's one at the top of the list, it's that we're a thankful people, right? 
You want to protect your heart? You want to keep your heart? You want to guard your heart? Just be thankful. Have a thankful attitude. You could say it another way. Ingratitude is a mark of an impure heart. Right? Gratitude is a mark of a pure heart, but ingratitude is a mark of an impure heart. So cultivate gratitude, which means, by the way, cultivate contentment. If, if you don't cultivate contentment, you're not going to be thankful, right? Those who are the most thankful are those who are the most content. Little contentment, little thanksgiving, great contentment, great thanksgiving. That's how it works. And, and by the way, ask yourself, why, why wouldn't I be content and, and, and thankful? I mean, again, we probably go back to the beginning, observation why wouldn't I be the most thankful person? Well, it begins where? It begins with my salvation. It begins with the thought that I, I, I am no longer going to die in my sins. I have God as my heavenly father. I have a savior. I have a mediator. I have an intercessor. I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to hell. I mean, I have a lot to be thankful for physically. I, I've, I've got a bed to sleep on. I've got clothes on my back. I've got a job. Um, I got a family. I got a car. I mean, you can just go through the list of all the things that all are all from God. You understand that all gifts, spiritually or physically, are from God. But at the top of the list is what? Our great salvation. I mean, again, you you meditate on all that Christ has done for us. For us, you you consider His death. You consider His blood. You consider His sufferings. You consider that He gave you a new heart. I mean, think about this. If you were a, a patient that had a bad heart because, I don't know, maybe you ate bad things, maybe you smoked too much, maybe you drank too much, and it just ruins your heart, but modern medicine gave you the opportunity to, to put a new heart in there. You got a heart transplant. You would be the, the absolute fool if you went back to all of that, wouldn't you? If you had a new heart, you, you would be protecting it, right? You wouldn't be doing anything that would harm it, right? And then carry that to the spiritual realm. God has given you a new heart. You used to run with the parties, and you used to run with the, the drug addicts, and you used to pour filth and garbage in the TV and the movies into into your heart, but now he's, he's giving you a new heart. Why would, why would you go back there? Right? Take some thinking, right? Now, again, this point is appreciation. If, if you're truly thankful, you'll protect your heart because he's giving you a new heart. Number seven. A few more here. Number seven, the word here I have is recognition. Recognition. What do I mean by that? That's just the practice in the presence of God. In other words, you just need to recognize and remember who is always watching you. You, you protect your heart because uh, God sees everything that's going into that heart. God's omniscient. He's watching you. 
and, and because of that, we need to keep God constantly in our eyes. Don't be a practical atheist. You know what a practical atheist is. Practical atheist is, you're not a real atheist because you believe that there's a God, but you're a practical one because you live your life as if there is no God. So keep God constantly in your eye. That, that is to say, don't take him to those impure and improper impro places. Don't, don't, don't watch those movies that you, you would know that God wouldn't watch with you. Remember, that's, that was Paul's point, I think, in 1 Corinthians 6. I mean, you, you, you are part of the body of Christ. You're baptized in Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. And so how do you, how do you go to a, walk into a brothel and then come out? If you're part of the body of Christ, you, 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 you stop at the door and say, Christ, could you just, could you just stay here? I'm, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be back in a half hour. Just wait for me outside. Is that how it works? Obviously not. So you don't take him there. You don't grieve the spirit of God. You don't put anything in your heart where you know God wouldn't be there. You think of what what you're watching. You think of what you're listening to. Is it poisoning your hearts? Is it taking you captive? Again, the point here is recognition. You need to recognize and remember that he sees it all. Remember the, the Latin phrase was quorum Deo, in the presence of God. That's how we need to live. in the presence of God, living in quorum Deo. Oh, we can say more about that, but let's move on to number eight. Number eight. Um, this might be a new one to you. Negotiation. Negotiation. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? Negotiation uh, is, is really just covenanting with God. If you're serious about protecting your heart, uh, and you know you're weak and you're feeble and you are, uh, are apt to backsliding and don't have much self-discipline, a, a good mechanism, a good means of grace is perhaps covenanting with God. Um, I mean, you see this in the Bible. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. And, and it, this was the practice all throughout church history. And, and this is the practice where an individual or a group of people for particular reasons, they would make a covenant or vow with the Lord to fulfill some kind of duty obligation or obligation. You, you see it with the Scottish Covenanters. Anybody familiar with Jonathan Edwards and all his resolutions? John Owen, in that book, Mortification, I think it's that one or maybe his book on temptation. He actually uses that language that it's a mechanism to stop you from sinning. If you have that darling sin, that besetting sin that you're not having any victory over, maybe covenant with God that you'll stop. Because you, you say psychologically covenanting with anybody is a serious thing. But if you're going to covenant with God, that, that's even more serious. It's, a it's just a simple mechanism. It's a practical way of protecting your heart. You just make a personal covenant or a personal vow to the Lord and then keep it, obviously. What did Job say? I have covenanted with my eyes. 
that I don't look at a virgin. Make a covenant. Make a covenant with God. Make a covenant with, with your eyes or your feet. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to touch this. I'm not going to touch that. The point here, it, it takes God's duties very seriously. If God says, protect your heart, how do I do that? I'm, I'm supposed to. I take God's duty seriously. But maybe, maybe covenanting with God will be that mechanism to help me fulfill that duty. Does that make sense? What it does, it, it reveals a soberness and an earnestness to your Christian obligations. In a real practical sense, covenanting with God, it puts a, a wall around your heart, you could say. It puts a wall, a wall around your heart. And of course, look, I need to say this. We know it's not the perfection, because you, you could do this. You could covenant with God. You could covenant with your eyes and your feet, and you're going to slip up. You are going to look, and you are going to go there, and you are going to touch that. And you say, well, there, there it goes. I've broken my covenant. Well, you, you know God knows your heart. He knows that we're just children of dust. That's the beauty of Psalm 103. That's why he, he treats us as his children and doesn't bang us over the head every time we sin. He know, the point is, he, he, he understands our, the commitment we, we are trying to keep, the sincerity of our heart. It's like, it's like Jesus and Peter at the end there in John 21. Peter, do you love me? I like you a lot. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? I like you a lot. Tend to my sheep. Peter, do you like me a lot? Lord, you know all things. What was the whole point of that? exchange. Jesus is going to take the, the sincerity of Peter's heart. Peter is this disciple that betrayed Jesus. I, he, 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 I, I can't honestly say, Lord, that I love you because I don't know. I know my heart and I don't know what it's going to do. But I can say there's a, a sincerity there and there's a commitment there that I, 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 I like you a lot. And I'm going to do what I can to show that. And Jesus says, well, you can show that by tending and shepherding my sheep. Does that make sense? You know, the Puritans were big on this, whole covenanting with God. The Puritans said, well-composed, advised, and deliberate vows are in some cases of excellent use to guard the heart against some special sin. Again, I, I, I assume you never heard that before. This has been kind of a lost art of covenanting with God. Maybe we need to reprise that if we're serious about protecting our hearts. Number nine, two more. Number nine, and the word I ha have here is association. Association. You've heard the saying, bad com company corrupts what? Good morals. You're serious about protecting your heart. You better be serious about who you hang out with. You, you better make sure you pick the right friends. Don't underestimate the influence of those around you. Can I get you to turn to one text? First Kings 11. You, you need to see this. I could just 
tell it to you, but I want you to see it for yourself. 1 Kings 11. Here's, here's the demise. If you know why Solomon went from a wise man to a fool, here it is. King Solomon loved many foreign women. Yeah, you could stop there. <laughs> that, that, that's where it all went wrong. Verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you. Why? And here it is. They will turn your heart away. Everybody see that? Now, the writer of 1 Kings doesn't say it one time. Look at the end of verse 3. The women, they turned his heart away. Beginning at verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives, what? Turned his heart away. And down in verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. And what turned his heart away? Our word, association. Well, his wives. Solomon's wives turned his heart away. Listen, protecting your heart, guarding your heart is really Listen, guarding and protecting against those who would turn your heart away from the Lord. You look at your friends. And remember, we did a study of friendship years ago. Maybe we need to bring that out again. A, a, a friend, just that word friend, biblically, means what? Anybody remember? Lover of your soul. That, that's biblically what a true friend is. Someone who loves your soul. So you look at your friends. Are your friends those who love your soul? I mean, we go back to the word taste. Your, your tastes with them are probably more similar than your tastes with the Lord. That's why you get on with them. But you need to reevaluate your tastes, your thinking, your thoughts. We, we need to be a lot more clear and, and, and think harder about our friendships. Pilgrim's Progress is a great example in this. You know the story of Pilgrim's Progress. You remember that there's Christian that he actually has to escape his own family and his, all his friends from the city, that city of destruction, because he wants to go to the celestial city, and he's getting everything out of his way to make that happen. But the Lord knows that he needs grace to get there. So the Lord gives him grace. He, he knows that the, the Lord knows that he needs wisdom to get there, so he gives him wisdom. And this is for all of us, by the way. We need grace, yes. We need wisdom. But we also need what? And what did the Lord give Christian to help him get to the celestial city? He gave him what? Friends. There was hopeful. There was faithful. He gave him friends. There was evangelists. Pick. You're going to have friends, but make sure you pick the right ones. Those who are lovers of your souls. Otherwise... Otherwise, your, your heart might be compromised. One more. Last one. Time's up. What have we said so far? Observation, humiliation, meditation, supplication, mortification, appreciation, recognition, negotiation, association. What's the last word I have for you? Destination. Destination. What do I mean by that? Well, when you're considering that you have a duty to protect your heart, it, you also need to consider your destination. 
That is, think about where are you heading? Where are you heading? What is your ultimate destination? You say, I still don't get it. All right, let me spell it out for you. Are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? Are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? Are you heading to glory or are you heading to damnation? Because if you keep the thought of your inevitable death in the forefront of your heart, then you will surely keep your heart protected. Does that make sense? I mean, what did the writer of Hebrews say? Without holiness, there will no one will see the Lord. And we could, we could put it this way. Without a holy and blameless heart, no one will see the Lord. Only the pure in heart see the Lord, right? Blessed are those, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. And you need to remember, Christ is returning. And when he returns, he's returning as a judge. And his judgment is an eternal judgment. So if there's, there's one direction here that should motivate all of us to protect our hearts, to make sure it stays pure and blameless, it is the very thought that Christ is coming and I'm, I am his friend and he's coming to judge the wicked and the dead and I'm going ultimately to heaven because without the purity of heart, I won't be. Without the purity of heart, without the holiness, I won't see God. I need to protect my heart. I got to I got to protect my heart because I that's where I'm heading. May that. Listen, may that thought alone be the direction for you to protect your heart. Where are you heading? Where what is your destination? If you're fast and loose with your heart, then don't be surprised unbelief sets in. Don't be surprised if Hardness sets in. Don't don't be surprised if it, it, it turns away from the living God. Well, we'll stop there. That's hopefully there's enough there to get the ball rolling. If you're serious about protecting your heart, there's ten words. Ten words. And there could be more, but ten's enough. As I said, to get you serious about protecting your heart. And, and to re circle back to where we began. If you want to think God's thoughts after him, if you want to be on his pace, you want to think like him, you want to act like him, you want to be on his righteous paths, well, it begins with protecting your heart. It begins with your thoughts being exactly like his thoughts. And when your thoughts are exactly like his thoughts, then you are on his ways and there will be a blessedness. There will be happiness. There will be joy because apart from God, there's no joy. Apart from, apart from being in God's will and following his ways, there's misery. And some of you know that. So I trust this has been an encouragement for all of us to seek the Lord more diligently and to aim to live our lives and our hearts more pleasing to him. Father, we thank you for our time this morning where we can think about where we are as Christians. Think about where we are 
even right now in contemplating our spiritual state, are we mature, are we immature, and if we are immature, is it a result of unbelief? Is it a result, going back to this issue of not protecting our hearts, as we begin a new year, may we be resolved to do just that, to protect our hearts. Take these directions, these how-tos, seriously, that we would constantly be observing, watching over our hearts, that we would be staying humble, meditating on your word, praying unceasingly, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, always being thankful, always remembering we're living in the presence of God, if necessary, covenanting with you, and making sure our friends are those who love our souls. And in the end, it's because we're going to heaven that we are blood-bought sons and daughters of God who have been given a new heart, and that should be reason enough to protect it. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.